Okay, welcome to day 196 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be in Amos chapters 1 and 2, Proverbs chapter 17 verses 5 through 14, and Romans chapter 2 verse 17 through 3, 8. Okay, so um, now we are on the second of our minor prophets. The first one yesterday was Jonah and... Um, we're not going to attempt to do all of Amos in one day like we did all of Jonah in one day, but um, and this is more of a proper minor prophet. Um, as I noted, Jonah was a narrative about a prophet. Here we have what we will see in basically all of the other prophetic books. So the thing to kind of envision here is, uh, you know, a prophet uh, coming uh, to those to whom he sent to prophesy, again, that, that is speaking the word of the Lord to them, kind of like the, um, uh, the one who is even above the king, not in terms of like he himself is above the king, but because he speaks uh, for God, because he speaks the word of the Lord, um, this is a, an authority that is higher than a king. So he comes and he prophesies, uh, or she, there are prophetesses in the Old Testament, um, and then someone, either um, his followers or disciples, um, or perhaps the prophet himself or some scribe, collects these oracles and um, composes them. So I, I guess that's just to say that although when the scripture says, you know, this guy says said this, this guy prophesied this, um, I think it's that that's what we should affirm. Um, it doesn't necessarily follow from that that the one who actually penned the scroll of Amos is Amos himself, although it may have been, um, and that goes for all of the prophets. So Amos is, first of all, identified as a prophet whose um, main occupation is not as a prophet, but rather he is a sheep breeder. Uh, the word that is used there, he is a no-cade not a row A. A row A is a shepherd, and no Cade is a sheep breeder. Um, and he's from Tekoa, which is a village um, uh, that seems to have been 10 miles south of Jerusalem or so. Uh, it's a little difficult to pinpoint. I'm not sure that it's actually been identified archaeologically. Um, and it is concerning Israel. So he's a southern prophet prophesying to Israel— or at least about Israel, we could say right now. Uh, but it very much does seem like he's um, like this message is directed to the northern kingdom, as we shall see. And he prophesies in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam II, the second, the son of who is the son of Joash, king of Israel. Uh, two years before the earthquake, the earthquake is not mentioned um, elsewhere in the Old Testament, uh, aside from um, a mention. In uh, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 5, which says, You shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. So, apparently talking about the same thing. It's obviously a noteworthy enough event that a prophet like um, like Zechariah, um, right, who writes after the exile, um is um it's still known at his time so 
Um, now, these kings, Uzziah reigns 796 to 740 BC. Jeroboam reigns 793 to 753 BC. Remember, this is a time of relative prosperity for both kingdoms, and um, these kings both have exceedingly long reigns. So Amos is somewhere in the first half of the 8th century BC, the 700s, the high 700s. Uh, and so, as I said, um, he goes to uh, prophesy, and he, and he's speaking to the northern kingdom, okay? So he comes, and there's, there's uh, an acknowledgement of where Yahweh actually is. The, Yahweh roars from, Jeru- from Zion. He utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. So here we have, you know, this picture of, of Yahweh shouting, roaring, from Jerusalem, from where the temple is. Um, by now, the northern kingdom has rejected that for at least roughly around, what, like uh, 140 years or so. And the uh, and the top of Carmel, which is in the north, withers. So God shouting from Jerusalem withers the top of Carmel. That's the image there. And then he begins his, uh, his uh, basically, his denunciation of several different uh, people groups, several different nations, and they're all they all have very they all have similar elements, and they're all kind of like unique in their own way. Um, but you have first of all you have this like what we might call a graduated numerical um, uh, literary device here. So for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, and. Uh, you know, I don't think we have to like read too much into that. Like, we need to like be counting or what's exactly one, two, three. You know, uh, but um, this is this is just like a lit. It's a it's a conventional way of speaking. Um, this happens a bunch of places in the Old Testament. Probably the most well known is Proverbs six sixteen through nineteen, where it's like there are six things that Yahweh hates, seven that are an abomination to him. All right, and then it lists seven. So. Um, one might even argue that, like, the creation narrative, right, six days and a seventh uh, is kind of like that as well. But, um, yeah, so it's for three transgressions. So the first is Damascus. And, of course, everyone in the northern kingdom hates Damascus. They hate the Arameans. Um, uh, I, and um, and then every one of them says, you know, I will, for this I will, I will not revoke the punishment. And then it's like, because they did this. And here they've threshed Gilead. Gilead being like, you know, the northern Transjordan area with threshing sledges of iron. We've seen a bunch of that going on, um, particularly, um, I mean, under a bunch of the Ben-Hadads and especially under Hazael. And uh, so I will send a fire on the house of Hazael and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I'll break the bar of Damascus. Uh, cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avin, which Avin, uh, the Hebrew word Avon, which this is apparently taken from, is it means iniquity. So it's calling it the their their area, the valley of iniquity. And him who holds the scepter, obviously the king, from Beit Aden, which is you know same as Eden, uh, the the house of pleasure, the valley of iniquity, and the house of pleasure. And the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kir. And um, in chapter 9, verse 7 of Amos, it speaks of Aram being from Kir. So the idea is like, they're gonna, I'm going to send them back the way they came. Um, 
And then we get to Gaza, which of course is Philistines. And there's actually more than just Gaza that's in focus here. So we could think of it as the Philistines in general. And notice the similar formula for three transgressions and for four. Um, I will not revoke the punishment. Again, very similar. And also, um, interestingly, um, you've got um, in verse 7, I will send a fire and it will devour her strongholds, just like it was said to Damascus in verse 4. So um, the same kind of idea, and you can really see how this is like imagery at this point, right? Like this is, God's talking about like like destroying their defenses, um, bringing down the things in which they take security. Um, and of course, this will eventually happen under Assyria, like to all these places. Um, but because it, you know, specific, like, it's not as if, like, we, if we can't find, like, um, like, you know, if you, like, took a time machine and you didn't see, like, strongholds in Damascus and in Gaza um, and in um, uh, Tyre and Edom and Am Ammon and Moab, if you didn't see that, like, in each of them, you'd be like, well, what the heck's he talking about? No, this is just, this is, like, imagery here talking about, like, essentially God's going to ruin their um, their their sense of their their security, the things in which they take refuge. Um, now Gaza's um, crime here is carrying a whole people in, um, into exile and delivering them to Edom, and it's not clear what this is referring to. It's not even clear that this is Israel or Judah, because just around the the bend here in chapter two, uh, verse one. Uh, when when it's talking about Moab, it talks how Moab burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So, in other words, the things that these guys are that these kingdoms are being chastised for are not necessarily crimes against Israel or Judah. Um, sometimes it's just injustice even against each other. Okay, so it's just unclear what event in the Philistine history it's talking about here. Um, but then we have other uh, Philistine prominent cities mentioned. I will cut off the inhabitants of Ashdod, uh, the one who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. Notice that both those elements were also present in Damascus. Um, uh, the, the inhabitants uh, in, of the Valley of Avon, the scepter from Beit Aden. And um, I will turn my hand against Ekron, the remnant of the Philistines shall perish. And then he goes to the third and the third is Tyre, the Phoenician city. Um, and again, you have the, I will send a fire and it shall devour her strongholds. And the reason being that they delivered up a whole people to Edom. So they assisted Edom. Um, I suppose it's it's important to note, you know, as, as I did just say that, like, you know, it's not clear that this thing that Edom did was against Israel and Judah, but it wouldn't be like unheard of. Um, they are an adversary to Israel uh, at several points in their history. Uh, in fact, we've already had the reign of King Amaziah in the in the south. And remember, he's the one who uh, gives Edom a whooping and then thinks he can take on the northern kingdom, uh, which he can't. So, you know, that conflict there exists. So it might be Israel that it's talking about. And here, notice the, the idea that, it, that Israel might be in view here, or at least Judah, is that it says that Tyre broke the covenant of brotherhood. And remember that uh, Hiram, um, and perhaps um, his a successor by the same name or the same title there, had um, covenants, treaty alliances with David and Solomon. So some kind of treachery there. 
And then we have Edom. Again, three transgressions and four. I will not revoke the punishment. He pursued his brother with the sword. And there, um, you know, almost clear um, as day that that would be Israel. Israel is typically referred to as Edom's brother. Remember, Edom is the people of Esau. Jacob is Esau's brother. That's the idea here. So very un-Esau-ish, right? Because Esau pursued peace with them. Um, I will um, and and um, I will send fire on Taman. Remember, uh, it shall de- uh, that Taman is a mountain in uh, Edom, and it shall devour the strongholds of Bozrah. Um, and then the fifth, you get the Ammonites. So Ammonites are the northern Transjordan. Um, and theirs is particularly uh, despicable. They've ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. So like, their political ambitions were such that they were willing to do something as despicable as that. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour her strongholds. Again, the kindling of the fire, the devouring of strongholds. And um, then it talks about exile. Their kings shall go, their princes shall go. Then the sixth, you get Moab. Um, and again, here now, Moab is against Edom. So it's not even something they're doing against Israel here. Although, um, remember, Moab has fought against Israel and Judah before, um, including like that that mess of a situation um, where, um, uh, you know, Jehoshaphat helps the king of the north. And, uh, you know, you have the Mesha inscription there. And, um, uh, well, we read about that in, in Kings. Um but uh, the, the fire, the devouring the strongholds is there, and uh, Moab shall die amid the uproar, shouting in the sound of trumpet, I will cut off its ruler, kill all its princes in him. And then, then it gets to Judah, okay, Israel's uh, neighbor to the south, and this is where Amos is from. And, and remember, this is like he's proclaiming to the north, so they're like, ah, Judah, those guys stink. And... Um, and so, and he says, they've rejected the law of Yahweh. Notice how specific to worship of God this is. They haven't kept his statutes. Their lies have led him astray, those after which their fathers walked. And so I will send a fire on Judah and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. And it's a little difficult to know exactly what he's talking about here, like precisely. Of course, this is like a general pattern, but remember like, He's prophesying during the time of Uzziah, and Uzziah, as well as his predecessor Amaziah, are evaluated as kind of good kings. Um, so, uh, but of course, you know, perhaps there's a significant element there that we don't know about that Second Kings just didn't tell us about. Um, also, we have seen what like the reigns of kings like Jehoram and Ahaziah, and then Queen Athaliah have been like. Um, uh, where where you know this like strong influence from the north comes in, uh, so it's it's unclear like what exactly it's talking about. You know, of course, if this is this is prophetic, right? And this is uh, speaking of um, to some extent something God will do in the future, and this certainly will be the pattern that the kings of the south take up pretty consistently, with few notable exceptions. Um, and then finally, so they so they hear the seven. Right and biblically, you're like, oh, seven. That's a that's a good number, right? And so the Israelites must have been like, yes, the climax is Judah. Judah, you're gonna get it. And then he goes for three transgressions of Israel and to four and for four. 
And you can imagine, wait, an eighth? Wait, there's only supposed to be seven. And we're the eighth? Um, be- and then you have a bunch, like, a bunch of like just terrible stuff. So first of all, injustice. They sell the righteous for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals. That's how little worth their their lives have um, in their eyes. Who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth, turn aside the way of the afflicted. Um, so there you have clear marks of injustice. Um, uh, this is a denunciation, of course, against the wealthy aristocracy of the north that really got going in the days of uh, the kings in the house of Omri, like Ahab and et cetera. Um, and, uh, but still continuing into the days of Jeroboam II. Um, uh, then you have, you know, sexual transgression, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. Um, these kinds of relationships are forbidden in the law. Um, like you're not allowed to go into your father's wife, for example. I'm, using that expression, because that's the biblical euphemism, uh, Leviticus 20.11. They lay themselves down beside every altar, and not only are they laying themselves down around false altars, but they're doing so on garments taken in pledge. And remember, that's not something you're allowed to do, Exodus 22.26, that, you know, that's a poor person, that's what he sleeps under. You can't take that as a pledge. Um, In the house of their God, they drink. Um... And which God are we talking about here? Um, and what are they drinking? The wine of those who have been fined. So notice the mixture there of like idolatry with injustice, the taking of, gar- um, you know, the laying down with uh, beside the altars combined with the garments taken in pledge and um, the drinking in the house of their God and they're drinking wine of those who have been fi- fined. Um, even though I'm the one who brought them into the land and gave them the land. Right? I'm the one who destroyed the Amorites before them, um, like as if they were trees. Okay, um, I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who led you for 40 years in, in the wilderness. Uh, and I gave you holy men among you, sons of for your prophets. Uh, I gave some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Nazarite, remember, is a vow you could undertake if you wanted to be especially separated to the Lord. Number six. Um, but what did you do to them? Well, you made the Nazarites drink wine, which of course is part of the Nazarite vow you can't do, and you commanded the prophets to not prophesy, to shut their mouths. And so I'm going to press you down in your place like a cart full of sheaves presses down. Um, uh, and then like anybody who's capable of any um, like uh, anything that would be valuable in wartime is going to be put to shame. So the swift their flight is going to perish. The strong, he's not going to be strong anymore. The mighty, he's not going to be able to save his life. The archer, um, he's not even going to be able to stand. The one who is swift of foot, again, not able to save himself. The one on the horse, not going to be able to save himself. The stout of heart, he's going to flee away naked in that day. And, um, and this is the first encounter, at least in our reading, uh, of that f- expression in that day. And this kind of becomes this formulaic thing for what will become known as the day of the Lord, which is this day when God vindicates his righteousness in judgment, uh, as well as sometimes in salvation. And it's one of those themes that gets developed in the prophets and then in the rest of the Bible as well. All right, let's go now to Proverbs 17, uh, verses 5 through 14. 
Um, so speaking of injustice done against the poor, whoever mocks the poor, you're not just mocking the poor, you're, you're insulting his maker. You're insulting the one whose image he bears. All people bear the image of God. And when you do something against those who are poor, um, like here mocking, you're doing it against God. Um, and those who are glad at calamity, again, yeah, I suppose this could be like the calamity of the poor, you know, haha, look at him, he stinks or whatever, that will not go unpunished. God will avenge that. Um, here's something for you grandparents out there. Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their fathers. So here you have this, you know, family, strong family relationship extolled. Um Fine speech is not becoming to a fool. Still less is false speech to a prince. So this is actually more, I think, about the prince than it is about the fool, right? Because we know that the the fool, obviously, like good speech is um, kind of like falls on deaf ears to him. No surprise there. And false speech, but just as unfitting as that is, is a prince who lies. Um uh, and then, and then we have uh, a bribe is like a magic stone in the hands of him who gives it, uh, in the eyes of him of the one who gives it. Wherever he turns, he prospers. Um, this, of course, is uh, bribes are no bueno. Um, that is the, a hallmark of injustice. Exodus twenty three eight. Uh, we see bribes denounced in Amos two chapter five verse twelve, and all over the Old Testament. Um, and I think it's interesting that it's it's the magic stone in the eyes of him who gives it. So the one who, and this is kind of one of those proverbs that's like teaching us the way of the world. So someone who gives bribes thinks, hey, it's this is like magic. I could just get anyone to do what I want, right? And still, in his own eyes, whenever I turn, I'm wherever I turn, I'm going to prosper. But of course, we know based on. Uh, the rest of biblical revelation about bribes that that is that there is more to the story but this is just telling us like hey here's you want to be wise well the one who's offering bribes here's how he thinks about his bribes um whoever covers an offense seeks love and he who repeats a matter separates close friends so um if someone does something that's wrong do you advertise it do you gossip about it to others um because if you do you're, you're going to be destroying friendships. Um, a rebuke goes deeper into the man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. So um, if you're a man of understanding, in other words, the, thing that you, the only thing you need to, uh, to turn you to do what is wise and to do what is right is a good word, a rebuke, right? Um, but if you're a fool, you could be hit a hundred times and it's not going to go as deep as a rebuke will go into the man of understanding. An evil man seeks only rebellion, and a cruel messenger will be sent against him. So obviously not a good thing to foment rebellion. Uh, like, let a man meet a she-bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. So it's better to encounter an angry bear than someone who is foolish. If anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. I think that one's pretty straightforward, but of course, something we all need to to um, take to heart. And then finally, the beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. You might have a reason you feel ju justified to keep, you know, pursuing uh, what you think is right. But if this is turning into a fight, it's better to just quit. Um, it's better not to stir up strife. 
All right, let's go now to Romans chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 8. So, so we saw yesterday um, the, the idea of um, this, this leveling between uh, Jewish people and Gentile people, right? Like that both are accountable before the Lord. And here we, today, we're going to see more on this idea, but it's going to be more specifically Jewish directed, like towards, towards a pride, you know, like we're the covenant people of God. We're the ones who know his law. We're the ones who have circumcision, right? Like all of that, like that doesn't make you any better. In fact, and, and, and kind of like riffing on the, the line from yesterday, it's not the hearers of the law who will be righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So here, right, if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law, you boast in God, you know his will, and you approve what is excellent because you are the one who is instructed from the law, don't you know, right? Um, so, no, and notice that these are all just like things that like, uh, that, um, you know, pretty much anyone can do, anyone could say of himself, Um uh, it's, there's nothing about like this person actually doing the law, right? And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, okay, so I'm the one who knows and will help others. I'm the one who is a light to those who are in darkness. I'm the one who's the instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, um, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, okay? But when you teach others, do you teach yourself? So here, you know, um, the the essentially hypocrisy right is being is being addressed um so you who preach against stealing are you stealing you who saying that others must not commit adultery are you committing adultery you who are abhorring idols do you rob temples and of course that reference to rob temples always makes everyone <laughs> scratch their heads and i don't know if anyone has a great idea exactly what paul means by that um, I think probably the most plausible explanation is that Paul has some knowledge of something that has happened in Rome, perhaps where items that were dedicated to a temple were stolen, and then um, you know Jewish people were okay with um, with purchasing them or acquiring them somehow. You know, it's very speculative, but you know Paul seems to expect his readers to know exactly what he's talking about there. Um, some have suggested also this is not giving the temple tax, but the fact that he says temples rather than temple, I think, makes that unlikely. Um, this sounds like he's talking about pagan um, temples. You know, you're the ones who are supposed to abhor idols. Um, but, uh, you know, mo mo much clearer is the next verse. You who boast in the law, you dishonor God by breaking the law. So, and it, it doesn't have to be restricted to these things, of course, stealing, adultery, robbing temples. Um, it, in all things, like, we're the ones who tell others that they shouldn't do certain things. Well, are we listening to our own advice? Um, and so, um, and, and remember the context here, again, He's building a case for the universal sinfulness of mankind. So here in here, addressing the issue of hypocrisy. Um, and then he addresses the issue of circumcision, because as we have seen, this is one of like the prime things that marks someone off as a Jewish person. But just because somebody possesses this, Paul's going to argue, that does not mean that they're actually, it, that they're actually right with God. Um, so circumcision is of value. Like it's something that is, you know, can be an important, 
thing before God. Obviously, this is the sign of the covenant of Abraham. Paul opposes circumcision when it comes to, like, thinking it's a salvation thing, but, like, there are good reasons why someone might want to be circumcised, good religious reasons. But it's only really of value to you if you obey the law, because if you're not obeying the law, it's just not only are you not obeying the law, but now you're vulnerable to this charge of hypocrisy as well, right? So if you break the law, even though you're circumcised, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. And then he talks about, he says, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, right? So someone is, is, who's uncircumcised actually follows the moral commandments of God, will not his circumcision be regarded as circumcision? Like, how unjust do you think God is? Um, and this is especially the case in Christian communities who understand the nature of the new covenant and understand that circumcision is not really what makes you a child of God. And and technically, in the Old Testament, it's not either. It's just that in the Old Testament, everyone who was a child of God was commanded to be circumcised. But especially in the Christian community, um, that's not the case. Um, and um, here, however, you know, he's talking about like how um, even for non-Christians, um, uh, right, circumcision doesn't really count. It's not all that. It doesn't count. It, that's like, it's not like that that's what God looks at and says, ah, you are in the right with me. No. Um, so here, someone who's uncircumcised, keeping the precepts of the law, um, he will end up condemning you. And this is a figure of speech, okay? Uh, it's technically the word, it is the word crino, which technically means judge. But of course, this is judging in the sense of condemnation. Uh, but this idea of like a person judging another, like a, a person who is more righteous judging another, um, interestingly, this same kind of expression is used by Jesus in Matthew 12, verses 41 and 42, which talks about the men of Nineveh um, judging this generation, right, because they responded to the preaching of Jonah. Um, same language there. So the idea is that, like, you know, their righteousness just further vindicates how unrighteous you are. It, it further, you know, um, I should say maybe highlights or brings your unrighteousness into starker relief. Um, so, and that's what's going to happen by those who, uh, who are physically uncircumcised but keep the law. Uh, compared to you who have the written code, you have the law, you have circumcision, but you break the law. Um, because no one is a Jew who is just one outwardly. There are plenty of uncircumcised people who aren't really part of the covenant people of God. And circumcision, that's <clears throat> not merely outward and physical. In fact, what makes you uh, a child of God, what makes you a Jew, as he calls here, he's, he's speaking on the terms of the old covenant— is, is if you're one inwardly, <clears throat> because the Old Testament is very clear that circumcision is not merely something you do in the flesh, but it's a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. This idea of circumcision of the heart goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 10.16, where, you know, uh, uh, Moses tells them, like, circumcise your hearts, right? Like, don't just be concerned about your foreskin, be concerned about your heart. Uh, you also have this in Deuteronomy uh, thirty. Verse six, um, and the the man who does this, who who keeps the law and is circumcised in the heart, uh, his praise is not from man, right? You guys aren't praising him, but God is. Um, <clears throat> so then he 
comes and he says, then what advantage has the Jew? All right, so first of all, what you see here is a literary technique that Paul will use multiple times in the book of Romans, which is, um, which is called a diatribe. So a diatribe is, and this is very important for understanding a bunch of pieces of Romans, is when it, it's a, like a rhetorical device where um, when you're making an argument, you raise the objections that people would raise against your position as if you are the person making that objection, and then you proceed to answer it. So sometimes I like to read Romans with like two different voices, right? So like, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, right? So so Paul answering the questions that he knows that people are asking of him. Because remember, Paul hasn't been to Rome yet, but there are plenty of rumors about what this guy teaches. And you can imagine how that game of telephone gets distorted. So Paul wants to anticipate these before he gets to Rome. Um, And here the question is, like, so, like, circumcision just doesn't matter for anything? Like, it's, there's, and already he has said it is of value if you obey the law, but here he elaborates, and just a little bit, though, right? Like, so to begin with, the, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So it's, it's good to be a Jewish person. Like, you're the ones to whom God entrusted his word. Don't you want to be a part of that? Um, but then you have the objector come in. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? So, uh, you know, we know that some people who call themselves Jews are unfaithful. And does that mean that, you know, we could look at God's covenant people, see how they're going astray and say, you know, I guess God doesn't really, like, change lives. You know, I guess God um, isn't really faithful. He's not able to raise up faithful people among him. And this Paul will especially hammer on in chapter 9. But here he answers it by saying, by no means, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged, Psalm 51.4. So his answer to that is, like, by no means, God is absolutely righteous, even though, you know, as I'm saying, um, you know, if my argument is true— there are many who call themselves Jews who are not truly. That doesn't impugn God's righteousness. Um, and then the immediate objection to that. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? So so the objection here is the idea that, okay, um, our unrighteousness gives God an opportunity to show his righteousness. And remember, here is that expression, righteousness of God, okay? God's righteousness in judgment and salvation. So, you know, um, God shows himself to be just when he judges sin. So that, so God, you know, that, that, I guess we could say helps God, you know, uh, with our, you know, in scare quotes there, right? Um, in, in giving God an opportunity to show himself righteous in the judgment of sin. So like, Maybe God owes us one because we're actually helping him by our unrighteousness. You can already hear how ridiculous that argument is, right? And Paul even distances it. He wants them to know that, like, this is not his thought. He says, I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? So it's just taken as a given that God is righteous, and um, and he is the one who who 
um, has the moral right to stand in judgment over all men. And so uh, the argument seems to be that like that the um, the premise that is accepted by all is that God will can and will judge the world. And so there's no way that you can say, well, my unrighteousness has given God an opportunity to be um, uh, to, to show himself to be a judge, or perhaps we might even say he's give he's this gives him the opportunity to be gracious. So God should you know thank me for that, right? Because he's then worshipped as the God who forgives, the God who forgives iniquity. No, that logic is uh, perverse and perverted, and um, and especially in light of this next objection, this next diatribe objection. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, right? I'm lying, and in my lying, I simply show God to be more righteous or more glorious because why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Aren't I helping God somehow? And, uh, and, and, and if this sounds ridiculous to us, right, like think about when you're tempted to sin. Have you ever used this excuse to sin? I know I have that like oh god will forgive me anyway and and you know what like it'll be uh, that that's what he's about and he loves being a forgiven god after all and that becomes like an excuse for sin right god's graciousness his the things that jonah was upset about him for yesterday right that you're a god abounding in steadfast love like um uh you know so like that i i'm almost like like giving God this opportunity to do what he does, okay? And it becomes this justification for sinners. And um, and uh, so, why not do evil then that good may come? And this is a chief thing that Paul is accused of. This is one of the things that his gospel is accused of doing. That is justifying sin, being used as an excuse for sin. And... Um, and, and we could totally see how this can get turned into this because we do it all the time. Um, and so, like, you know, these rumors are swirling that Paul's gospel of free forgiveness in Jesus, right, justification by faith apart from works, that that's what this—this this is what that brings about. It brings about people justifying their own sin in that, hey, I'm showing God to be awesome because he can forgive a sinner like me. Okay? And he says, as some people slanderously charge us with saying. And then I love how he answers. He's like, I'm not even going to answer that. I'm just going to say their condemnation is just. right. So Paul shows that he not only abhors the conclusion that some people are, are, um, lev- are, are drawing, the false conclusion that they're drawing from the gospel that he preaches, um, but that, you know— um, that 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 also doesn't follow from the logic of the gospel and if it's not clear why yet it will continue to be clear as we go through romans um but that is it for today so um uh as always i look forward to being with you tomorrow and until then keep reading scripture take care and bye-bye